Okay, now we have, we have recording has started, which is great. My name is Karine Mogg. I am the director of the Meter Center for Calvin Studies, and we are truly delighted to welcome you to this special webinar. Uh, we have been doing a number of these over the past number of weeks and months, even since last fall. And it offers us a wonderful opportunity to get together and to essentially give ourselves an opportunity to hear about new publications that are emerging or work that is being done in the field of Reformation studies. So last year we had sessions with Lyle Birma on his work on baptism, with Susan Carrant Nunn and sort of looking back over the course of her scholarship. Um, we had various ones uh, with, with Phil Benedict, we did one with Michael Bruning as well. Um, these are great opportunities for us to all engage in thinking together about Reformation studies and the various currents and streams within it. So what I'm going to do now is first introduce our speaker. And again, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, please do mute your microphone and make sure you're muted as you come in. And uh, we will do the following. I will introduce Bruce. He will then speak a, uh, for a, a little while about the themes of his book and the main points he wants to highlight. I will then ask some questions to start the discussion. And then you will have a chance to ask your questions by using the chat function. And I will relay the questions to Bruce as we go. So an introduction, Bruce Gordon. Bruce Gordon did his undergraduate work in Canada, in his home country, and then his PhD at the University of St. Andrews. And it was while Bruce was in fact completing his PhD that I first got to know him since I came to St. Andrews at that time. He did his PhD in Scotland and St. Andrews under the supervision of the late Professor James Cameron. Bruce then joined the faculty of the Modern History Department at the University of St. Andrews and became the Deputy Director of the St. Andrews Reformation Studies Institute. In 2008, he took up a position at Yale Divinity School, where he is currently the Titus Street Professor of Ecclesiastical History. Bruce is known to many of us through his publications and his research. Um, he has published extensively on various aspects of the Reformation, notably the Swiss Reformation. His 2002 monograph on the Swiss Reformation is actually one of the best reference, modern reference points for studies on the Swiss Reformation. I've used it in my classes and it's really, really good. Um, his 2009 biography of John Calvin is also known to many of us and is one of the best current biographies of the Genevan reformer. His publication record continues. In 2021, he has recently published a collection of studies co-edited with Carl Truman, and that is called the, uh, it's the Oxford Handbook of Calvin and Calvinism. And the subject of today's webinar, his most recent book, Huldrych Zwingli, God's Armed Prophet, which is being published by Yale University Press. For our North American colleagues, it's not actually available yet, but Bruce tells me it should be available before the end of November. Bruce, we are so delighted to have you here with us to discuss the main themes of this biography. Welcome. Thanks so much, Karine. It's, it's a great pleasure uh, to be here. <clears throat> And uh, a really great pleasure to, to see so many familiar faces and friends and, to be honest, people here who have so uh, shaped uh, the way I have approached this subject, the, all, the people from whom I have learned uh, so much uh, over, over, I'm afraid to say now, decades, and um, the people to whom I owe 
such a great deal. Um, my acknowledgments in this, uh, as I joke, look read like the sort of credits from a from a you know the the Ten Commandments. It's it's uh, because I realized when I did this book how many people over the years have been so influential on me and many of them not least my my late uh, supervisor in st andrews jim cameron but people like fritz Busser, who was in zurich and who welcomed me when i first showed up there many many years ago uh, and lots of people who were at that institute right through to Pedro opitz who's who's there uh, pierre kildebrand i see here uh, today who has not only been a friend and a helper, but um, played a decisive role in making sure I didn't get the, the 16th century German wrong. So uh, David Noah, who, who can't be here today, did the same for my Latin. And uh, so there's so many so many people to whom I'm grateful, and it's, it's wonderful to see many of you here today. Uh, just in case you're skeptical, the book does actually exist. Um, it exists in the, the rest of the world, uh, not in America. So this is my small contribution to American exceptionalism that uh, Zwingli will, will come at a later date to, to America. So as, as Karin has invited, me to do. I'm going to, to make some comments about what I was trying to do, what I hoped for this book, and a little bit about how my own thinking changed in doing, doing this book. Um, and I hope that that will, will generate responses and thoughts and, and uh, discussion. So let me, let me begin by saying uh, a few things. First, something about the, the shape of the book. For the most part, uh, I follow a largely chronological account, um, although in the middle part, uh, there are two chapters that slightly divert from that. One looks at Zwingli's 1525 three, uh, work on true and false religion, which in many ways I regard as um, not, not the final uh, version of his theology, but one of the most uh, formative and influential, not least of which it was the work that was most significant in translation and distribution across um, Europe and beyond uh, after Zwingli's death. So in many ways, it was the work that that shaped his his legacy. So I have a chapter about that, which I do put in in historical context, but uses as an opportunity to think about what he has to say about God, sacraments, church, and a whole range of uh, other subjects. And then there is a chapter uh, which broadly fits in chronologically, but somewhat steps to the side to deal with the issue of Luther and Zwingli. Luther learned, uh, looms large through the whole book, as you would imagine. Um, but in some ways, this was a slightly perverse way of dealing with uh, a subject. If you, I can tell you, this is not very much uh, in terms of entertainment, but if you want, if you find yourself really desperate, uh, try looking at how many articles there are since the 19th century through to today that are called Luther und Zwingli. Um, this obsession, particularly in the 19th century, of comparing their characters. Luther was the uh, monarchist, uh, Zwingli was the republican, all manner of distinctions. Luther was the troubled soul, Zwingli was the optimistic humanist, all manner of ways in which people have, have designated these two characters, trying to figure out the relationship between them. Um, and so I, I, I sort of have a go at this, but in, in a somewhat different vein, I hope that you'll get a sense as I, as I talk further. So it runs really through from the from the origins uh, to Marburg, and then then the, the chronology picks up in, in following chapters. 
The emphasis of the book in many ways, although it is a biography, and I've been thinking a lot about biography for now quite a long time and actually teaching on it, teaching both uh, spiritual autobiographies and religious biographical writing. So it's something that has been very close to uh, my intellectual interests for quite a long time. But the emphasis in this story is to bring in as many characters as possible. And that's not just to kind of take on the obvious criticism of what biography is, that it, it focuses on one individual in a kind of outsized way, uh, but rather to make a point that I'm going to come back to in, in a moment. For instance, the Anabaptists or radicals, however you want to use that language, and of course language is very difficult in all of this, is not a separate chapter but appear all the way through the narrative to make the point of their centrality, that they aren't simply one discrete part of the story, as is often the case in the way in which this is told. Likewise, uh, significant Catholic figures from the beginning, Archbishop uh, 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 Hugo von uh, Hohenberg, Hohenlandenberg, the, the, um, from the Diocese uh, of Constance, uh, through to uh, Eck, uh, uh, Fabry, all these others, uh, I try as much as possible to present them on their own terms and not simply as people who come in and out of, of the Zwingli story. So there's a, and then others, Ecolumpadius, um, a whole cast of other people to try and show them in their own right, rather than simply as appendages of Zwingli. The book also took shape, as we all know, through a series of recent Reformation anniversaries, including Zwingli's own in 1519. So a lot of the book is about memory. Uh, Zwingli, or Zwingli, Zurich, as we now know, is a very secular city, a very secular society. Yale University Press is a very secular organization that is not interested in the slightest in what they might think of as confessional history. So one of the questions I have in many ways is thinking about this from a secular point of view. How do we living in a largely secular society, uh, particularly in the sort of Euro-American world, think about a contentious, violent, a violent times religious event with a highly contentious figure? How do we memorialize that? In, in contemporary society. And that leads me to the book really runs through in the last two chapters to the kind of afterlife of Zwingli, what his contemporaries and those who followed in the early modern world made of him, Calvin et al. And then through the 19th, 20th centuries, really running up to figures like Gottfried Locher, who was one of the great interpreters of Zwingli, but through Karl Barth, but Philip Schaff and all these um, various people and an anniversary culture and what they may, the various and often quite unusual ways that they represented Zwingli, how he gets caught up in a whole range of cultural debates, really through to our time. And, the, and it ends with the, the 2019 film about Zwingli, uh, which was the largest budget Swiss film ever made. It wasn't the, certainly the most, it was, certainly wasn't the top grossing, uh, but it was uh, made by someone who no longer would identify with any particular branch of, of Christianity, but wanted to convey Zwingli to a contemporary audience and how he did that. So there's a, um, uh, Randy and Head and I did a, an article for this, for the archive on the way in which memory and, and Zwingli happened in, in uh, 2019, and this was part of it, but also through to often humorous, ironic ways in which Zwingli was represented in contemporary culture. 
asking how, for instance, someone like Philip Schaff, the Swiss American church historian, a great figure of the 19th century, so foundational to the writing of American uh, religious history, regarded Zwingli as the prototype of 19th century liberal theology a connection that we might not obviously make, but had a strong currency through people like Walter Köhler, um, who I just did a, a, an article on, who saw Zwingli as this uh, moderate figure, which is perhaps not what comes to mind for most of us thinking about him, but to show that he's had very different lives uh, through the centuries. Perhaps a few people might think when I did Calvin, people often said to me, I, I enjoyed your book, but it's a shame you didn't like him. Um, that's not, uh, to be honest, a debate that interests me uh, at all. I don't think our notion of liking or not liking people is something that is easily applied to the lives of these people. I certainly don't think they would uh, recognize it. And some people may well think that this book uh, means that I don't like uh, Zwingli. Um, that again is is not my, is not my interest. That's not where the fascination for me of the story is. I find much about him uh, often mesmerizing and fascinating. There is much about him that is deeply troubling and problematic. He is a person that I describe in the book as of extraordinary imagination and creativity, but also of extraordinary limitations. And, and that's something that I'm more interested in exploring. Uh, and so, to be honest, uh, my goal is not to rehabilitate him, to restore some sort of narrative of the third man of the Reformation as one, as he's often referred to, and to tell you here that he's more important than Luther, or he's more important than Calvin, or he's more important than Melanchthon, or that he's more important than Ecolumpadius. This is not uh, what this is about. I try to bring on all those people and ask, what was actually the relationship between them? How do we actually think about how these people existed on their own terms with each other? Yes, Eclampadius, as I say in the book, I think was a superior theologian. I think he was a much more subtle mind. I think he he uh, uh, saw things, particularly, and, and Amy Nelson Burnett is, is much more the expert on this, but saw things in the Eucharistic debate that Zwingli couldn't see. And, and certainly he had the respect of people like Melanchthon and even Luther in a way that Zwingli uh, did not. So, you know, that's important for me. That's important to think about. It's what I'm not interested in is, you know, comparing the Zurich and Basel reformations to say which one was more influential, which was. So this is, so this is um, you know, sort of the way in which I'm, I'm operating here. The same with Calvin and Zwingli, which I think is a fascinating relationship, much more fascinating than is often thing. But you know, is Zwingli more important for the reformation than Calvin? That's, that's not something you're going to find much in, in the book. What you will find is a sense that Zwingli is a person who is extraordinarily creative of a movement that uh, generates things that are very much taken up a generation later by Calvin, changed in many ways, refined, but Calvin exists in a different way to the Reformation movement than Zwingli did. Zwingli's there at the beginning. Much of the ideas that shape what become the Reformed, or even if we say Calvinist tradition, which I'm, I'm more uh, uncomfortable with, but if we, if we say that, we have to say things like infant baptism, the covenant, all sorts of things about you know the language of Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, therefore cannot be present in the world. Arguments like this, these are inherited by the next generation, which may go in slightly different directions, but they are inherited. And Zwingli doesn't, in a sense, inherit them from somewhere. They're, he and his colleagues are the people who are forging in the fierce debates of the 1520s many of these uh, arguments. Uh, 
So I'm not trying to, to create a, a hero here. I'm fascinated in the relative strengths and weaknesses of these people and what they can tell us historically and also uh, theologically. Um, Zwingli does not die heroically. He dies, I think one could say, in an unnecessary war that he played a key role in, in perpetrating. Um, I am not Swiss. I've spent a lot of time there, but I am not Swiss, and I have no need for patriotic heroes uh, in this book. But I think there is a great deal to fascinate. He largely, as I say, invented uh, a, a new form of Christianity, which became the Reformed tradition. There was no blueprint for what emerged in 1525-1526 in Zurich. There was no obvious model. Yes, there were strong and important institutional and theological continuities with the late medieval world, and certainly continuities of, of mentalities. But in shape and in theology, there's nothing to match it. And even if we look at Wittenberg, there's, it's, it's something that is very different that is created in this context. And although Zwingli is not alone, he is also crucial in, in creating this. And that's what I, I'm, I'm interested in the vision that, that forges this new and distinctive form of, of Christianity. He's a brilliant writer. I think you know, that's something we can, and that's something that I really came to appreciate in doing this, kind of immersing myself in his writings. He is the lover of Pindar. He is, he, in that sense, he is the disciple of Erasmus. Erasmus, as you imagine, looms also very large in the story. I came to see him really as the poet, not only as the musician, but a person who's, who, whose love of poetry um, is suffuses the way uh, that he writes. His elegance in both Latin and German is, is at times beguiling. His ability to create very clear arguments, um, not necessarily arguments without problems, but his ability to articulate arguments, something that we often attribute to Calvin, I think quite rightly, but is something that I see very much in, in Zwingli. He staged Greek tragedies after he, you know, in Reformation Zurich, after he was the, the head of a reformed church. He, he stages Aeschylus and other Greek plays for which he writes the music. So this is, this is um, he's also, I think, more to make a comparison of one sort, he's also much more self-reflective uh, than Calvin. He offers ways into his life that Calvin didn't. Calvin was very difficult to find in many cases. You had to dig through his biblical commentaries. You had to dig through. Uh, Zwingli, in many ways, is more uh, forward in about his life, um, both in his correspondence, which is, again, I know, um, Amy Nelson Burnett is working on the correspondence and what I think will be a crucial project. But Zwingli's correspondence, um, even by previous biographers, was relatively little mind um, as a source, actually, for getting a better picture of who this person was, is. But, but he's also a person who conceals, um, which could be deeply frustrating. And again, if we make a comparison with Luther, we all know very well uh, Luther's willingness to talk about his family, about his wife, about all manner of things, about himself. Uh, Zwingli draws a curtain. Um, Anna Reinhardt, his, his, his wife, hardly figures anywhere in any of his writings. There is, is well known, there's the two letters in which she's mentioned. He tells, um, I can't remember which one, I think it's, it's, it's one of the Blacher brothers, not to inform her that he's going to Marburg. 
uh, he, he, he actually, in a sense, lies to, to saying that he's going to Basel and she's not to be told what he's actually. So for, for reasons which are perhaps difficult to, to um, in some ways difficult to, he draws his life, a, a curtain around his family life. That's not something he's going to share, whereas he's more prepared to share aspects of his inner self than, than we would find in Calvin. So he creates his own sense of complexities in trying to, uh, to reach him. But he's many things like all of these people, and they're not always consistent. He's a performer. He's what we might call a self-fashioner. Uh, uh, he is a rhetorician. He is a stage director. The 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 disputations that happened in in Zurich they are they are theatrical performances in many ways in which he he stars. He he has a he has a strong sense of the dramatic as you would expect of a of a poet in uh, a musician. Um, it's clear that that he was able um, to inspire in others great deal of deep friendship uh, and loyalty, so that even at the end of his life, when some of them, including Eclampadius, say, I had, I always had doubts about his view of the relationship between the gospel and um, violence or or military coercion, but the personal. Uh, connection runs very deep in this. This notion of friendship is very important in the book. Friendship, not in a kind of casual modern sense, but as something that actually held together very tightly how these people understood themselves, not just in personal terms, but in terms of being committed to the gospel, of being, in many cases, either fellow Swiss or or, or German speakers. It, it it was a it's a term that bundles of course it has a, it it comes out of antiquity erasmus writes about it but it's also a vernacular reality that shapes the dynamics this the whole beginning that we think of the sausage incident we think of those reading groups that emerge in zurich in 15 uh, 20 21 perhaps even as early as 1519 um, they were groups of friends meeting in home. This is where the movement starts. And in many ways, as, as we know, the tragedy of, of the radicals, of, of those who parted ways so bitterly was uh, the destruction of a friendship circle. People who had, there was a sense of betrayal, personal betrayal uh, in what happened when they thought that Zwingli had actually departed from what he, what he had, what he taught them, what he preached about. But these things were not intellectual ideas. They weren't mere theological ideas. These were in ideas that they felt were embodied in their very relationships. On a lighter note, it's clear he was very funny, or at least he could be very funny. Um, that's something I never found in Calvin. Uh, Zwingli had a great sense of humor. He loved to play with words. He played with his own name. His name Ulrich became Huldrich, which means in dialect, rich in grace. Um, he plays with Latin forms of names. He, like, he, he, makes, he likes to make jokes. His students ref remember him as being uh, humorous and funny and, and enjoying laughter, which is not to say he was you know, the nice guy of, of, of the Reformation, but rather to give a sense of a character. Um, he could be playful in his writings, even theological writings. It, that sense of humor could also be turned into very sharp and polemical. He frequently, as not uncommon in the period, would make, would use people's names, Thomas Murner, for one, you know, the goat's head. You know, the, he would play with people's names as a way of, you know, of satire and polemic. So it, it, could, it could work in a variety of ways. The book, I think, um, I hope, reflects uh, several underlying convictions. Uh, 
uh, I, as in line with, you know, uh, all of us who work with presses know that they have certain expectations uh, that we have to, to, to meet. Um, certainly the expectation of Yale in this was that they wanted a good story. Uh, so, of course, that made me have to think a lot about how narrative would work. And some of the people, I know some people here read early drafts, and I would say very defective uh, drafts, as I was trying to find the way to tell what I think is a great story, uh, a tragic story, but a great story, uh, but trying to find the way to, to, to tell it that also allowed me to, to, to think about the things which I see as, as very strong uh, uh, underlying and and what part of what problematized that for me is my conviction that the Reformation has no linear story to it. Certainly in in the 1520s, uh, we we have the old interpretation of this kind of wild period, sort of wild west period of the, of the of the 1520s. I think there's a lot in this. I think there's nothing inevitable about what happened in this period unless you want to take a providential view of it. Uh, nobody knew where any of this was going. And that's certainly the case with, with Swingley. There's, he had plans, he had a strong sense of God's providence, but he from literally from, from one day to the next often didn't know where this was going. And most of the struggles for which he's best known, whether infant baptism or the Lord's Supper, these were not debates that he would have chosen necessarily to, to have to have fought they were they were forced on him certainly the case that's certainly the case with infant baptism he was not looking and as Pierrick has worked on and the the notion of covenant that that debate in many ways turns out to be deeply formative of the reformed uh, tradition but also of wider protestant traditions but it's not out of some grand strategy that this was going to happen. Uh, Zwingli was not a person who created his own realities. Very few people in history are, um, but it does allow us to, to push back against some traditional ideas of the Reformation as if, you know, in some sort of Protestant um, uh, rather triumphalist narratives that that it was that it was clear from the beginning where this was going. What I find in the in looking at the 1520s is a whole lot of uncertainty, chaos, and a lot of conflict arising from unexpected quarters. Most of Zwingli's life is highly responsive, uh, reactive, even to ideas, accusations, and relationships over which he had little control. Uh, with the exception, I think, of, of true and false uh, religion, the 1525 text that I talk about, uh, most of Swingley's writings are not, in a sense, what we would call systematic uh, works that he was able to develop at length over long periods of time. He wrote extremely quickly, and it was clear from his publications that they were often full of uh, typos, what we would call typos, errors, because of the enormous speed with which he was working. We know that from both himself and from others, he would spend the night writing uh, so that he could get it to Froschauer in the morning. And then sometimes he would lament that something went to press before he felt it was even ready. And he writes at one point, I think it's to Ambrosius Blar, he said, you know, you know me, you know how I work, that uh, as soon as I think something, it's on the page and printed. So that, you know, it just gives you a sense of the kind of even the kind of chaotic way in which he's writing the the confessions at the end of his life are even which are laid out in a way more systematically but they still reflect a great deal of haste so my my 
my goal was not to construct events around Zwingli, but rather to examine his complicated relationship to those events and to the other people who are around him, which are constantly, as, as far as I can see, in a state of flux, uncertainty, and deeply precarious. His correspondence, again, is a very good place to, to try and track that. His relationships with the leading figures of the city tell us, if we look at it closely, that he was never in a secure position, or certainly never for very long in a secure position in the, in the story. We have, right from the beginning, uh, he drew up plans that got no response. Uh, at the same time, he would be asked to do things, and then the mood would change, and he would find that he was out of favor. So there's no easy relationship between him and power. The old Robert Walton book on Zwingli's uh, theocracy. Theocracy is a very problematic term in here. It suggests something that I don't think ever existed. They could ignore him as well as take his plans. And certainly by the end, by the time we get to the capital wars, he believes that they're really not listening to him anymore. And he, he, he threatens, as Calvin does, to leave. Um, he thinks, so there's, there's this even, you know, the, the, the central relationship with, which is between sort of him and political power um, is, is by no means a straightforward relationship. As I say, uh, I try to reflect on as many different characters um, and to show that, you know, Zwingli's views are distinctive, but always not unique. There is a great deal of overlap of ideas and thinking during the 1520s. Hugo von Hohenlandenberg, the often vilified bishop in this story, was of course a friend of Erasmus, and Erasmus had great hopes that uh, Hugo could be a reforming uh, bishop. The same with Conrad Grebel or Felix Mans uh, on that side. These are people who had visions of reform. They're not simply oppositional figures or, or deviants from what should be the uh, a normative version of reform in, in the Reformation. Uh, at the same time, we look at, at uh, Johann Eck, who I think is one of the most brilliant, perhaps the most brilliant character to appear in the book, um, who is, I think, an extraordinary, and I'd, I'd love for somebody to take up a, an English biography uh, of, of him. But this is, this is um, Eck is not a person who's just this dark, malevolent figure haunting the, the halls of the, of the Reformation for, for Luther and Zwingli and then tormenting Ecolumpadius uh, in 1526. This is a man who actually has a vision of what reform of the church might look like, as does Johannes Fabri, you know, these, these, you know who, who was at one point early on in correspondence with Zwingli about reform. So this reform has many faces in this, and Zwingli isn't the normative form of it. He's, he's one version of it that in some ways is privileged because, of course, he has access to power in some ways. He has, uh, he has certain forms of it, and, and of course that can lead to other visions of reform, like those of the Anabaptists being driven out. But it's not the only version uh, in town. And so I want to make this, this idea that, that um, Zwingli was part of something rather than simply leading something. And that we have to see, always see the bigger stage on which he's, he's performing. A few other uh, um, points before I, I, I close off. Uh, the book is an examination, I think, of several other questions that have you know, hung over me for many years, teaching both in, 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 in reading in St. Andrews and, and here in, in New Haven. Uh, what happened to, to the Reformation? 
This is something I think all of us encounter when we teach with students. What what happened uh, from those early days to when things changed rapidly into institutional form and the creation of churches? Zwingli is there at the beginning, yet we find in his life uh, a way into to seeing how the Reformation changes character uh, very quickly. Uh, what happens when you begin with the sausage incident, um, 1522, and you know Zwingli's uh, sermon uh, shortly after on on the freedom of a Christian? You know Luther writes on the same thing. But what what does the freedom of a Christian actually mean? It sounds great uh, in if, when you read the sermon, but what does it start to look like when you think about the necessity of? institutional forms uh, actually how are this you know how do you respond to your catholic uh, critics what happens when you have uh, forms of church that require uh, uh, obedience in the way that uh, previous forms have uh, what happens to sola scriptura all our students want to know what happened to sola scriptura when it, it suddenly becomes it meets humanist norms of education of biblical interpretation of uh, languages and you get what you have in zurich and other places creations of new clerical hierarchies, hierarchies of learning in many ways. One of the best examples of this, the much celebrated prophetsai, if you can use that term, in Zurich, where the, the scholars around Zwingli would meet uh, during the days of the week and would interpret the Bible in Latin, Hebrew, Greek, and then Leo Yud would preach on the fruits of this to uh, in the language of the people in the vernacular, this in this wonderful idea of using humanist scholarship to feed the the, the lifeline of the church. Yes, this is this is this is great. But you know, but then when you think about it, it takes place in the Grossmünster. There could be no clearer articulation of the idea that this interpretation of scripture is within the architecture of the church. So, you know, this is, I, I'm not trying to say that this is, but it's, it's my interest in is what happened to this? How, how do you get to these ideas where you need to pull back and create new forms of order uh, to, and, and, and as their critics often said, how different is that from uh, the order that they, they had before? Um, so just to, to, to move on, some of the, you know, and one of the things that, um, I also I, I also want to to talk about is is you know what happens to issues of religious coercion and violence. One of the ways, and I put this out in the in the introduction, is thinking about the way in which Zwingli, but you know one could could replace with certainly with other reformers, uh, realizes very quickly that reform is tethered to political power, and we all know that. But you know the way in which he understands, of course, which is one of the things that separates him from his his radical former friends, is this notion of what is what kind of relationship does the Reformation make with with power, authority, and coercion? Because if there's one story that's going to tell us about it, it's about a a, a reformer who dies on the battlefield. That inevitably has to raise a whole series of questions about what happened. And even the contemporaries wondered what happened. There was no clear narrative amongst Martin Bootser or, or um, um, 
the Blauer brothers or other, there, there was no clear interpretation of what had actually happened. Many of them were in fear that this had been the judgment of God upon, upon something they had done, which was very, very wrong. So this, this tension of the relationship between gospel and sword, which you see, of course, in the famous statue of, of Zwingli uh, in Zurich, in, erected in, in the 19, uh, sorry, in the 1880s, um, this image of, 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 and this creation of church and state, and what implications that has for Reformation and Christian notions of, of the, the tethering together of force and gospel. This is a theme that I'm very interested in. And it's not just that Zwingli dies at the end of this in, in 1531 in a mishap battle that, that seems like an eccentricity or some sort of um, outlier as an event. Rather, if you read through it from the earliest days, from the 1590, you find martial imagery all the way through. Uh, his work. Um, he, he's not as inclined as Luther to sort of apocalyptic uh, expectations, but they are there. He writes to uh, his friend um, uh, uh, Myconius, Oswald Myconius, very early on about how this is now going, that it's going to be war that will resolve this. This is already in 1520, 1521, long before any of these other ideas emerge. But he, he speaks of famously as Christ as being like a military commander. Uh, he uses military image. Now, of course, he's Swiss. He, he lives in, in the time of, of mercenaries, which defines many of his, but he embraces it as well. It's in his language. And, and language, of course, doesn't mean he's going to become a military uh, figure. But it's interesting to see that attention to the language shows that these things are very much in, in the air. Um, the speed of, of which the, the, the church that emerges in 1525-26 decrees what is, what is um, heresy. And, and adopts very much medieval attitudes towards heresy. Uh, the first victims, of course, being the Anabaptists, with Felix Mance being the first in 1527 to be drowned. But by that point, they've already been uh, either banished or imprisoned. This new church is already defining its boundaries of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So these are just touching on very briefly ideas that I'm, I'm thinking about as to how the Reformation actually creates these, these boundaries while seemingly coming out of an ocean that it is actually sort of breaking, uh, breaking these uh, breaking boundaries. So that by 1527, the Zurich church has become a persecuting church in many ways. So finally, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, to um, just conclude on this. Uh, I'm not trying to do some sort of presentist uh, judgment, a historical judgment on this past, but I do think the story of Zwingli, and I think about this very much for the context when I'm teaching divinity students, most of whom have very little historical background and probably very little investment in the Reformation. How do we, how do we talk about this? That's not, presentism is not... Uh, the way that it forward. But I do think that uh, what we work on does actually give us ways into very fruitful conversations. And also that some of our present conversations about the state of religion, politics, economics, society, at least has been for me working in the context of a divinity school, very much shaped the way I then look at the 1520s, 1530s. It, it has shaped the kind of questions that I, that I bring to it 
which is different from, as Karine said, you know, teaching in a history department at St. Andrews, where your undergraduates came with a relatively strong knowledge of European history. I'm, for the most part, as probably most of you do, work with people who have very little knowledge of, of European history. So what do we make of this story? How do, we, how do we tell it? How do we draw from it? What is significant, both for them and for the, you know, the way we might talk about it? Uh, I think the, the story of Zwingli with its, its uh, amazing achievements and spectacular defeats uh, and setbacks is an interesting story of human agency in religion and, and in religious history. Uh, thinking about the nature of change and conflict, which historians uh, might do, uh, it brings in, from my own perspective, a, fascinate, a fascination with personalities um, and how individuals work. Why do people believe what they believe and how do their beliefs actually connect with what they do in very complex ways? That was something that interested me in Calvin. And 12 years later, after a lot of reading and studying, I, I came back to it in, in the same way. Um, and finally, you know, to see how passions actually so much drive the Reformation. Ideas, events, yes, but also human passions drive this. And in the story of Swingley, we have uh, passions of friendship, we have passions of love, and we have passions of hatred. So I'll leave it there, uh, Karine, and wow. happy to go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bruce. That's amazing. You've given us so much to think about. Nobody um, needs to read this now. No, so no, no, no they, they'll still want to read it. Trust me, they okay. want to read it. It's, as you said, it's an amazing uh, story. Um, if people want to ask questions, I suggest you use the chat and I will get to those in a moment. So feel free to post your questions and I will get to those. But I want to start, Bruce, with giving you a chance to talk a little bit, maybe about something you haven't had a chance to talk about just now. And that's Zwingli's understanding of the Lord's Supper, mm -hmm. because I think it's, it's misunderstood by a lot of people as sort of mm -hmm. memorialism and that's it, a very thin mm -hmm. kind of let's mm -hmm. remember. Could you speak a little more about the richness sure, okay. of I, I think I saw Amy's name come up. She really is the person to, to mm. ask this question to. But, mm -hmm. you know, I've learned so much from, from her work on this. But it's, yeah, I, I do have quite a bit on the Lord's Supper in, in, in this. And I think there, there, are, there are various aspects of it. I mean, interestingly, you know, in this way, this was never really the debate between Zwingli and his radical friends. This was, you know, the baptism was, but the Lord's Supper much less so. Um, and famously, at the beginning, he think, he claims that he and Luther are saying much the same thing, just using different different words. Um, I don't think anybody bought that for 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 very long. That they they, I think they are fundamentally saying quite different things. Um, I think you know, and Ulrich Gabler, the distinguished Swiss historian, I think gets it right when he says, we find two very different worldviews or certainly theological views in the differences between uh, Luther and Zwingli. I'm not, I'm certainly not qualified to talk at any great length about Luther and I'm not, I'm going to leave that uh, aside. But what as I see in, in Zwingli is, yes, on the one hand, uh, a profound sense of reading Paul and John and to say um, God is spirit and will be worshiped in spirit. And this, of course, coming so much from Erasmus mm -hmm. uh, as well is a major figure in this on the sacraments for, for Zwingli. Um, this kind of separation of the material and the spiritual. Yes, that's, that's there. But where I think um, uh, 
there's there's a tendency for people to fixate on that point. And I think what it, it loses, at least, you know, and, and you could say that Zwingli doesn't, you know, isn't consistent and doesn't maybe bring this out as well, but my sense of trying to get at what he, I think he thought he was doing was this, this powerful, powerful sense of the work of the spirit. And if you look at what, what they do in the churches, they strip the churches. Um, and that's often taken by people to say this kind of iconoclasm is a sort of anti-art, um, you know, this is this is a kind of Puritanism that, the, you know, people in Zurich still refer to it as a kind of Puritanismus and, you know, this, this idea. But I, my view is that it's actually an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It's that, that, that it's that Zwingli, the artist, is creating a new, a different, a changed aesthetic with that uh, the stained glass for the most part remains because it's too expensive to take it out. But this idea of he, he uses constantly the image of light and liturgy. And I think that the, the, his idea of the Lord's Supper really needs to be thought of in terms of worship and, and liturgy. And the, what he sees in this as these symbols of the, of the bread and wine, yes, of course, not physically becoming the, the body and blood of Christ. And yes, he's, you know, he, he thinks that's what Luther is, is still saying, whether he's right on that, of course, is, is, is debatable, but that's what he thinks Luther is, is saying. And so much of that in the polemic in some ways drives him to take a, a harsher view on this but he he i think he sees this as these these um in a kind of platonic way he sees these images very powerfully as pointing to the realities beyond them and those realities are not just symbolic and notional they're very real he says at one point we all he says this at the baron disputation of 1528 we we believe in the real presence of christ mm-hmm. But what does he mean by this? He means, as I, as I understand this, this that the presence is, is of the spirit. And so this isn't just a kind of recollection of the Passover. It's not a kind of uh, you know, mental activity. It is in fact, a work of the spirit, which, you know, as one scholar many years ago talked about, and I think is, I think is useful. It, there's a, almost a kind of transformation of the, he used the word transubstantiation of the people. I think that's too much, but there is a kind in which the community really for Zwingli becomes the body of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And these images are that you know, Christ has instituted become that. So I, I, I would want to say that the, the, uh, uh, his, his, Theology is impoverished when you separate it from his visage, uh, his the way in which it was uh, embedded in worship, and what I think liturgy and worship are very are very closely associated to this notion of that Eucharist as memory being not just recalling, but memory being as Erasmus would use it, a kind of tr- you become the thing that you are. So you, you know, it's, it's, it's an engrafting, as Calvin would say, you know, it's a, it's, it's a becoming of something, become. you, you become the image of Christ. Absolutely. I want to turn to the questions because everyone's just posting away their questions. So I'm going to start. <laughs> uh, Christine Coy asks oh, the following, a counterfactual question. Would you speculate <laughs> about how the Reformation might have gone differently if Zwingli had not been killed in 1531? Mm. Okay, I think probably going to be a counterfactual answer as, as, as well. Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think I think there are various various possible ways that would have come from. Um, one of the interesting things is that at the end of his life, there were very real, very serious connections between the French 
and and Zurich, you know, Zwingli, who made his name against the French mercenaries, uh, devotes his his uh, on false, true and false religion to Francis the First. As, um, but he does so because he's he's making. Uh, contact with those sort of humanist minded reformers, but then more more significantly, his last confession is written towards France. I think one possibility could have been a, a more significant connection between uh, the Swiss and, and France in terms of reform. There are strong connections developing in what Christine would know in, in, towards the Netherlands. Um, I think one consequence could have been that, um, you know, that with 1531, the Swiss, the German Swiss pretty much retreat into a fairly provincial, uh, they're, they're kind of relegated to the side, I mean, which opens the door for, for, for Geneva. I mean, one of the things that's the sort of imponderable in this is what would have been the relationship between Calvin and Zwingli had, had Zwingli lived through the 1530s when Calvin shows up in, in Basel and shows up in Zurich, uh, uh, and meets, you know, meets Bullinger. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I would have loved to have been at that conversation because I just don't know where, what direction uh, it would have would ha would have gone in. But I think it, it 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 had Swingley lived, had there not been this spectacular defeat. Um, my guess is that the Swiss uh, uh, reformed would have become in itself a more significant part of the of the reformation story than it does because it it really really becomes connected to geneva after that absolutely uh randall zachman what do you make of the role of classical philosophy and perhaps poetry in swingley's theology he yeah. uses it much more positively in his theology as one sees in the 1525 commentary yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, Zwingli, uh, amongst his friends, is referred to as the philosopher mm -hmm. uh, because he seemed to have this very high view of of Aristotle and of classical, um, uh, classical, uh, uh, you know, Plato. He's a great lover of Plato. He he admits this, and you know, we have Urs Loy's fabulous work on Zwingli's uh, library, which we can reconstruct. And not only do we know what books we have, have but Urs and, and his colleagues uh, are able to show us uh, Zwingli's annotations and, and how often he's reading right after, long after the Reformation, he's still reading um, the classical authors, his beloved, as I say, his beloved uh, Plato. And of course, famously, we know much to, uh, 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 Luther and then later Calvin's consternation. Uh, right at the end, Zwingli writes about how it's going to be more likely to see the blessed uh, heathen in heaven than it will be most bishops uh, that, that he's that he's known. I mean, he he creates he does this on several occasions. Uh, says that uh, you know uh, Cicero and and Cato and the the blessed will will be in heaven, but but in in a more real sense, which I imagine is what what. Um, uh, uh, Randall is is getting at um, you you it's just from visually the, the sheer number of ways in which uh, Cicero and Plato are cited mm -hmm. uh, and classical examples Julius Caesar I'm just they're just kind of coming to my head at the moment uh, stories of you know Hercules you know all the way through from mythology through to Aristotle and 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 uh, Plato and, as I say, Greek tragedies, which he continues to perform in Zurich uh, after he's he's the reformer. So these things are by no means banished from. Uh, he he writes a preface to an edition of Pindar, 
uh, after you know after 1525. Uh, we know that he. So um, I think the short answer, Randall, is is that it's 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 not just decorative. Yeah. Um, it's not showing how much he's read. Uh, I think he believes in the Erasmus idea of a kind of baptism of the classics. And I think Zwingli is prepared to take it perhaps a step beyond uh, Erasmus himself. Yep. And in the same vein of citations, the next question is from Ryan Yoakum, who says, first, thank you, Dr. Gordon, for this excellent talk. You mentioned exploring both the relationship Zwingli had with the contemporaries, as well as the legacy Zwingli holds in secular society decades later. Yeah. You also explore some of Zwingli's interactions with the theologians prior to his time, which could be either mm -hmm. church fathers, such as Origen or Augustine, or even maybe some medieval theologians. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and um, somewhere I see my my colleague Volker Lupin here, who knows uh, our friend Daniel Bulliger, who who worked, who did an amazing work on um, uh, late medieval scholasticism and and Zwingli, particularly on Zwingli's notion of the infinite notion of God. Um, it's clear that when you know Zwingli, unlike Calvin, actually did study theology. The question is how much in the theological faculty at Basel did he study? But there, you know, he 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 says he he read the scholastics, and we know that when he was um, pastor in Glarus, which or priest in Glarus, up until fifteen sixteen. Uh, again, Urs Lloyd tells us his library is he's continuing to read the scholastics. Mm -hmm. um, he's 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 reading, you know, notably Duns Scotus, but he's also reading Occam. He's reading Aquinas. We we know this from his his annotations. So this isn't just guesswork. Uh, and people who know more about theology than than I do uh, are able. I mean, there was the old Heiko Oberman argument about the Via Antiqua and Via uh, um, Moderna, and you know, Luther, seeing Luther on one path and, and Zwingli. I mean, what Daniel Bulliger taught me is that it's far more messy than that, and and uh, that they're reading everything and drawing references from. So for for Zwingli, you know, if you just look at his Bible, you know, his beloved Augustine. Um, is is everywhere uh, in this. He reads and rereads them, but he's reading the Greek fathers. He's reading, um, you know, like all these people, he's reading all these editions that are rolling off the presses uh, from Froben in 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 uh, Basel. Uh, from an early age, he's getting people to send books from Basel to him as a remote pastor. These are we know that these are editions of of church fathers. Uh, he's reading Floraligiae, so collections of. Uh, uh, so, you know, some of the stuff he's getting, you know, what we might think of as secondhand. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, you know, he's, he's um, you know, in ways that, you know, as a, uh, primarily as a historian, but people who are like Daniel Bulliger and, and who uh, are very attuned to the kind of scholastic influences tell us that they're absolutely there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, question from Jim West. Mm -hmm. Question for Bruce, how much do you think the 1515 Battle of Marignano impacted Zwingli's view, especially of the mercenary service? Yeah, I think I think my view on that is probably very much the, the traditional one in, in a way. He's um, he, he accompanies the troops from Glarus there. Um, he sees, I mean, he'd already seen, uh, he writes an account of the mercenaries, Swiss mercenaries in Italy in an earlier stage, and he he writes that he wasn't there at that one, but he writes uh, accounts that were based on what he heard from people who those those rather small number of people who actually made it back. 
so he writes one uh, historical account of this, which kind of glorifies the, the mercenaries, uh, but his own experience as a preacher, and we know not very much about what he preached, but we know he did preach to the, the troops. Um, there's no doubt that it is, uh, you know, we might even think of it as, 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 as kind of uh, a kind of post-trauma syndrome here. I think he's, I think he is traumatized by it. I, I'm always a little wary of, of, you know, being monocausal about what made him do something afterwards, but I think there's no doubt that, but of course, you know, within a dozen years, what is he doing? He's advocating military conflict. Yeah. So it's not that clear cut what what the impact will have been. Uh, he certainly it deeply affected his view of Swiss killing Swiss, and it certainly impacted on his notion, his rather nostalgic notion of a kind of older Swiss generation who were virtuous, and brave, and mountain dwellers, and 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 the kind of William Tell story. Mm -hmm. um, that of a kind of lost virtue in with the mercenary service, but he, he, um, you know, he dies on a battlefield. So you know, we we you know, so if we say his you know conversion experience is on a battlefield, well, he you know he then just over about fifteen years later dies on one. So it's it's not entirely straightforward. Absolutely, and it's 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 one of these transition points for him. But it, yeah, as you said, his, his, the repercussions are are complicated. Yeah, I don't um, I don't think I don't think again. You know, as I talked about earlier, there's no there's no there's no linear story or morality tale in this. Yeah. Uh, a question from Stephen Ecker. Fascinating work. Thank you. I'm interested by your insights on the building of new structures loosed from Rome, based on Zwingli's unique vision for reform. Mm -hmm. How do you understand what Swingley was doing with his new evangelical mass in 1525, especially as it relates to worship patterns? Okay, um, so I hope I can get a sense of this. The institutional reform, um, you know, and, and I said, you know, that he, he re-envisages the church in a new form, and I, I, I stand by that. But in doing so, he draws uh, heavily on... Um, certain medieval, he kind of picks certain medieval models. And, and for instance, what I did my work on a zillion years ago on the synodal reform in Zurich, those synodal or, uh, ordinances that emerge in, in, from 1526 through to 1529 are drawn on uh, diocesan legislation in the, in the diocese of Constance in the late Middle Ages. And, and we know uh, that aspects of of canon law are incorporated uh, into the, the positive laws in Zurich after 1525. So there's um, he is creating something new, I would say, but he's 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 using a lot of older ingredients, and he's certainly very attuned to reform efforts in 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 the late medieval church, which he's picking up on. He's very aware of. He has no problem with drawing on certain tools, uh, and and in some ways the the the, the new um, worship service, the Lord's Supper, that appears at, at you know uh, Monday Thursday, uh, Thursday in in fifteen twenty five, uh, still has elements. It still has some elements of of the canon of the mass in mm -hmm. it. Uh, not entirely, of course, eviscerated of its of its uh, certain theological elements. Um, there's long been a debate. Um, I, you know, I, it's, some people say it, some people say not. But you know that that some of the medieval uh, books on on preaching 
uh, influence the form of of worship that Zwing, the liturgical forms of of Zwingli. I'm you know I, I'm I'm not able to make a a positive decision on that. But um, so there there is a great deal of you know as one often does with the church fathers. There's a great deal of pulling things out that that are uh, congenial to you. Mm -hmm. uh, to construct something that's 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 new. So I think there's there is something new, but it has a lot of older parts in it. Absolutely. Um, a, a question from Esther Chung Kim: mm -hmm. uh, In the transition from text to practice, what other boundaries besides heresy does Zwingli consider to be part of the Swiss Reformation? By the time Bullinger and Calvin agreed to the 1549 Consensus Tigerinus, Eucharistic mm -hmm. theology becomes a boundary. So mm -hmm. I guess the question is about the boundaries, what, what, what's in and what's out from Swingley's point of view. Yeah, I think that, um, and I, I, would, I would say, Esther, in some ways in the 1520s, those boundaries are quite fluid mm -hmm. uh, still. They're, they're, they're being slowly worked out. And part of the problem is this is taking place against the background of such rapid change. Um, and, and, you know, I think we could ask here is whose boundaries are we are we talking about? Because that raises the uh, complicated question of authority in this, and that Zwingli and the magistrates were not always on the same page. One of the boundaries for the magistrates was that religion not become a, a, a source of social unrest, and that was the boundary that they set at the beginning that 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 disputations or iconoclasm or preaching not lead to unrest in 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 the city um this is before they had made up their mind about what constituted acceptable uh preaching or not so there's uh, there's different boundaries uh being being created for 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 Zwingli the you know the boundary would be um how you know uh, he would set it at at fidelity to the word of God, and and there he uh, he parts with the the radicals on issues like he says that they willfully misrepresent uh, the uh, the New Testament when they refuse to acknowledge uh, infant baptism. Uh, he to a certain extent he uh, acknowledges the boundaries that are set by creedal formulations of the early church as being. Um, because in, in many, much of his theology, he never even discusses or debates many received elements of the faith. He regards those as fixed boundaries. So, um, yes, I think under Bullinger, you get, uh, because of the, the disaster of 1531, when there is this reconstructed relationship between the, the, um, uh, the council and, and the church, which Bullinger has to negotiate, uh, those boundaries become much clearer because there's a strong feeling that in many ways Zwingli didn't have sufficient boundaries and that you had this kind of prophetic preaching which was uh, which actually undermined the state in many ways and and so the the new form of preaching had to be controlled much more so there's there's this idea of where the boundaries are is is it's it's a little bit on who you ask Absolutely. And it is, as you said, in flux in this in this time. Yeah. Uh, an interesting question from Maximilian Schultz. Did mm. you approach the craft of biography differently this time? To what extent was this a different type of project from oh. Calvin biography? Oh, thanks, Max. Uh, yeah, well, I approached it from being a lot older. And <laughs> as, 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 uh, and, um, and I, I say that only half in jest, uh, that, you know, tw as I said earlier, 12 years of, of 
teaching in between, um, only a little bit more in St. Andrews, but 12 years of being in the North American, uh, in not only university, but intellectual world has had a huge impact. And uh, uh, really it wasn't until after I did Calvin that I started to think much more explicitly about biography as a form of, of writing and taught some courses on it, taught those courses largely to try and educate myself uh, on this. Um, but to come to your question, yeah, I, I would say, um, although I tried to place Calvin in his networks and place Calvin in his social context, I think my approach to Zwingli was more driven by seeing him also through the eyes of others, uh, seeing him in relationship, uh, seeing him as I started out by saying more uh, as a kind of reactive figure to events. Um, uh, I think, I, I'm not sure that I would change what I did about Calvin. There's certainly, um, I, there's probably more, there's, there's a bit more theology in this one than, than there was in, in the Calvin uh, biography, which again probably reflects 12 years of being, at least teaching in part at a divinity school. Um, um, and as I as I said, also I'm 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 interested also in the the kind of more of the kind of mega questions in Swingley. Is you know I'm very aware that you know this book comes out. A lot of people don't know anything about Swingley, and and you know in in many ways why should they? Um, and my argument here is this is the super important person in the Reformation you just don't know enough about, and I'm going to tell you this and, and correct our vision of the Reformation. As I said, that's not what I'm trying to do. I think this is a person who is fascinating as a lens on a whole series of questions, and that's not really how I went at Calvin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the whole biography of Calvin is a crowded field. Um, yeah. Biography yeah. of Thingley is a little more open and it's and even that fact of it just being in a different chronological period i think must yeah. also well uh, yes if i was going to if i was going to sort of be in with the exception of peter opitz if i was going to be in dialogue with the other people who wrote biographies you'd need a ouija board i mean they're, they're, most of them are from a very long time ago <laughs> yes quite exactly um question from matthew flanders dr gordon do you believe that the importance of the contingency in reformation history and the lack of a linear story applies more to Zwingli than to others such as Calvin or Luther. In, otherwise, in other words, is Zwingli's life a good example of what others experienced or is his situation somehow distinct from others? And are those distinctions more important than what these figures have in common? Gosh, uh, that's fascinating questions. Um, I, I, again, I'm, I'm so loath to, to, to do the kind of compare the reformers uh, game, but I think you know because I think they're they're all living. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, Calvin didn't want Servetus. He didn't think Servetus was going to show up in in Geneva. Um, that was never anticipated. Uh, so he didn't expect that to happen. Um, he didn't expect his wife to die. I mean, there's this you know the, in all these people's stories, uh, and similar things could be said for 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 Luther. Um, they all live highly contingent lives, um, in which much of what happens in the story is something they could never have predicted was going to happen. And what becomes for us the kind of canonical story is is you know not at all self-evident to to them and in that is Zwingli more well maybe um in that you know uh, Calvin and Luther 
you know, by our, our standards, didn't live that old, but uh, but uh, they lived a lot longer than Zwingli did. I think one of the remarkable things about the Zwingli story is that he arrives in 1519, he's dead in 1531. Mm -hmm. he, he's a reformer, perhaps, where you, depending on where you want to date it, 1522, 23, I would say probably end of 1522. Um, uh, this isn't a lot of time for this all the i mean when you think of the amount of things that happen mm -hmm. uh in less than a decade um you know he's in zurich in 1519 uh in 1525 there's a whole new church order mm -hmm. uh everything you know the the old religion for the most part has been cast off and both not only in terms of theology uh, but also in terms of physically, the churches have been have you know the whole world the whole kind of world of Catholicism is physically removed uh, by and and you have a completely different conception of worship six years after he arrived and uh, to be the preacher in you know a a, a priest mm -hmm. in this I mean that's remarkably quick and. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the institutional change, the, the debates with Luther, all of these things happen at e extraordinary speed. And if you think about the speed that things are happening in the empire at the time, things that are happening in France. So I think they're all living very high speed lives. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. What's perhaps unique about Zwingli is that he doesn't, is, is the amount of things that happens in a relatively short period of time. Mm -hmm. And that's, if I can make one quick add on to the point, we people often say Zwingli is, uh, you know, what would have happened? I mean, another counterfactual question might have been, what would have happened had he lived to church music? Um, because it's not entirely, I mean, yes, we know that he said things about mumbling of monks and we need to get rid of this. It's not entirely clear what would have happened with, with music in churches had he lived another 10 years, because hymnals were being printed in Zurich uh, while he was still alive. He didn't stop that. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote music, Leo Yud wrote music. So I think there's a lot of things that the sudden death just simply, the curtain just came down and there are a huge number of unresolved questions. Absolutely, and, and Zurich's trying to find its way forward after what is a calamitous effect. I mean, it's not just Swingley who dies in battle, there's a whole other pile of pastors who die. Oh, a huge number of them do. And 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 the, the absolutely vitriolic response to them in the city, mm -hmm. I mean, it's only by the, the, the work of a very small number of magistrates, this is before Bullinger, that that they they hold on to to uh, it's it's the magistrates who keep the reformation. It's not Bullinger in the first instance who who saves it. There's a small number of uh, you know temporal figures who in that in that very crucial moment between Zwingli's death and and that they are the you know it it hangs by a thread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could say a little more about your subtitle to the book. So God's <laughs> Armed Prophet. So the armed position, thats you've made that, I think, pretty clear as to what's going on, the portrait yeah. of Zwingli with a sword and so on. But maybe say a little more, if you could, about Zwingli's sense of himself as a prophet. What does that look like or how does that come yeah. through? Yeah. So the, the I, you know, I'm sure everybody figured it out. The, it's, it's a play on Machiavelli's uh, Savannah Rola as God's unarmed prophet. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Zwingli, of course, for all the reasons we know, was armed. But, my, um, but it doesn't just stop with that. The, the, the use of the term prophet is, is um, very intentional here mm -hmm. in that because Zwingli certainly thought of himself as a prophet but as you know, some very good work uh, 
has done, um, John Balsarak and, and uh, um, others have, have done on um, uh, uh, Susan Pack, the other one who really comes to mind, who have done really work, fine work on, on the prophet in, in this period. He understands prophecy in a particular way. Mm. Um, prophecy, he does not see himself necessarily as a kind of Elijah, as a uh, Isaiah. Uh, that's not the, the kind of prophet that he sees himself. Rather that from 1 Corinthians, he sees the, the prophetic office. And he sees the prophetic office as being held collectively, not simply in his own person. Although I think there is a clear sense that he does have a, a sense of a rather special calling. But that but it's it's held collectively. This is the idea of the prophet side where all these learned people, it's a kind of sodality uh, gathered together and, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are doing this work in interpreting scripture, as I say, within the structure of the church. So it's a very ecclesiastical notion. Um, but, the, but prophecy for him, and he says this over and over again, meaning as he interprets Paul to mean the correct interpretation of scripture. So it's, he says, it's not about knowing what's going to happen in the future. That gift is given to some, but that's not necessarily the prophetic office. The prophetic office is the ability to interpret scripture correctly. Mm -hmm. And that's, to be honest, what he thinks they are doing in Zurich. And that's part of the, of course, the, the conflict with, with uh, Luther and, and the Anabaptists and all the people they oppose is that they, they hold that their, um, that the tools in a way that Erasmus has taught them, um, they are employing to, to, to the right end of scripture. And that is essentially the, the prophetic office. Mm -hmm. um, and the, 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 uh, uh, the chief fruit of this is both preaching, but also something really mentioned, but I think is probably the, Zwingli's greatest achievement which is the Bible of 1530-31, which you know doesn't have the currency of the Luther Bible. Of course, it couldn't because it's in Alemannic. It's it's um, it has it has a much shorter reach. But you know, with its Holbein woodcuts and its philological skill, is is you know a kind of I think you can say is a treasure of the Renaissance. Yeah. And, and, and in many ways, I think, although Zwingli is, you know, only working with other people, and I think he writes the preface to it, but uh, um, that, you know, is a kind of embodiment of, for him, of what the prophetic office is. Yeah. And it's rather than seeing himself as the new Jeremiah, or, you know, in a, in a way that we might think of Luther claiming a prophetic role. And the interesting thing is then it can be taught, you know, in other words, a prophetic office can be taught. You can train people as in future yeah. pastors in yeah. the same way, which is That's kind right. of interesting, the transfer. Yes, yes. The, 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 past, the, 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 the ministry office becomes a prophetic office. Mm -hmm. and, and, that's, and so that pastors are prophets mm -hmm. um, because that they're engaged in the proper activity of prophets, which is the, uh, the, the, the correct interpretation of scripture. And they're trained in that, exactly. Yeah. Um, quick question from Esther Chung Kim. What's your view of the Zwingli movie and how might that movie be a pedagogical tool? Oh, um, well, thanks, thanks to Pierre Kildebrand. I actually have a copy of it on, 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 so I've been able to watch it a number of times and I watched it quite carefully again for, for, uh, in working on the book and, and the article that, that Randy Head and I did together. Um, I like it. I think it's it's 
um, a difficult story to tell. Uh, Stefan Haupt, who, who did it, chose a very particular path to telling the Zwingli story. There's no Luther in it. Mm -hmm. There's no Marburg. There's no uh, Lord's Supper. Uh, there are lots of Anabaptists. It plays up uh, the violence, the, the, the burnings, Jakob Kaiser, who's burnt. Um, we see in quite graphic detail the, the drowning of Felix Mans. Um, so uh, he also chooses to tell the story of Anna Reinhardt, which, as I said earlier, uh, Zwingli almost excises completely out of his, his own life, at least out of his public life. So it, there is something of a love story. It's seen through her eyes, which I think is very creative. Um, uh, uh, I think that, um, uh, I mean, visually, it's stunning. I mean, this is, you can see where they spent their money. Uh, uh, it's, it's amazing. The way in which they recreate it is, is, is fantastic. Uh, you see a Zwingli who um, is in many ways a Zwingli that you can market to a modern audience. So downplaying uh, some of the, you know, you're not going to get any election or predestination. You're not going to get many of the more unpalatable aspects of, of theology. Uh, and upplaying his, you know, work as in social reform, uh, care of the poor, you know, Esther's you know, work. Um, uh, so he's, he's a kind of, as I say in the book, he's a kind of, um, uh, I've forgotten the word of what I want to use. It's, it's a whistleblower. Okay. He, you know, he's like, you know, he's, he, he takes on kind of modern roles that, that a secular society could rec recognize as virtuous. And he's seen as somebody who's involved in the creation of the modern social state. I mean, not, that's too much, but I mean, you can see that, that he has virtues that moderns can identify with. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I mean, you know, you could imagine if you just filmed Oswald Myconius's biography of Zwingli, it would, you know, it would attract nobody. I mean, it's just this very pious account of him. So I think it does what I think a, a biography has to do, a film biography has to do. It seeks to translate the 16th century into 2019. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of ideological baggage in it, um, you know, to do that. And that's what fascinates me. So I've got I think four or five pages on the film at the end of the book because it really fascinates me that whole question which is is how do, what do you do with somebody who dies on a battlefield in 1519 in 1531 for religious reasons uh for a society that largely thinks religion is about fanatics anyhow yeah no exactly and that that's a challenging assignment um, Jim West has added a link. If anybody wants to see the movie or show it to their class, he has a link. Um, and then he, Jim West also put up a link earlier in the chat for the interview that he did with you, Bruce. So you can watch that as well if you want to have more of Bruce's thoughts on his book. I think that could be kind of fun. Uh, it's terrific. Um, it has been so good to have you here, Bruce, and to get to hear about this project. Um, it is wonderful to have your work coming out very shortly. And I think a number of us are really eager to sit down with that biography and really get a better sense of Zwingli um, beyond the sort of the, the trope of the third man of the Reformation. I think you've done an amazing service. This is, this is absolutely terrific. Um, I would invite everyone to just keep an eye on our Facebook page. We'll be putting the recording there. So if you have want to listen to it again or you missed something or someone else in your circle wants to listen to it, we'll have a link up for that fairly shortly. 
in the meantime, um, please join me in thanking Bruce. <laughs> Thank this is terrific. Um, if anybody wants to stay and just informally chat, that's fine. I'm going to stop the recording at this point. Uh, let's do stop.